Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 is where we're going to start today. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about something. When I say the word obsession, the word obsession, you probably get a negative feeling. It probably, probably carries a little bit of a negative connotation. The word obsession gets a bad rap in our culture, and that's understandable because we usually, when we say the word obsession, we usually mean an unhealthy obsession. We mean it in the sense of being so preoccupied with something or someone uh, that it's really kind of to the detriment of everything else. That's why you would, you'd say, oh, that person is obsessed with X, Y, Z. The object of our obsession takes and takes and takes from us and really doesn't give anything back, and therefore we call it unhealthy because that obsession is unsustainable. But the word obsession, just the neutral word obsession, is actually defined as a consuming preoccupation of mind and heart. A consuming preoccupation of mind and heart. So the word obsession itself is actually a neutral word. It's not the problem. It's the object of our obsession or what or whom we're obsessed with uh, that can be the sticky issue. I would like to argue that obsession sometimes can actually be a healthy thing. It can be a useful thing, a timely thing in the right way, in the right season. Uh, Just an example, um, I know of several of you in this room who have shared financial testimonies with me about getting out of debt, and it took a season where you had to be obsessed with with ordering your finances in the right way, obsessed with a budget, obsessed with getting out of debt, and you achieved it. And so that obsession was a necessary one. Uh, Even, you know, you, you can probably think of a season, whether it's in your job or school or any part of your life, where a little bit of obsession goes a long way towards achieving something that's valuable, studying for exams or, or a presentation at work or whatever it may be. So obsession can actually be honest and useful in the right moment. It can actually be a helpful thing. A couple, uh, not a couple years ago, a year ago, math, um, a year ago, I had a meeting out near Rosemont, so I jumped on the blue line, and I went out to the meeting, and I had my backpack, and I just had my Bible and a few of the journals that I had been uh, kind of looking back through some prophetic words in, and I was, I was studying, and I, and I also had a great book that I was reading. So I was on the train, I went to my meeting, and my meeting was done, I'm coming back in towards the city from Rosemont. And we stopped at, I think it was Montrose or Irving Park, you know, kind of a little bit out that way. And then the train stops at the station and you hear the dreaded, boop, boop, boop. We are standing momentarily while cruising. And so, so you, you've all been there. You've all been there. And um, so it was all good because I was reading a book. So I'm just like, it's fine. I actually had a seat because I got on at Rosemont. The train wasn't full yet. You know, CTA goals. And... I'm sitting there reading, and then, you know, one or two minutes turns into five minutes, five minutes turns into ten minutes, turns into almost 15 minutes, and something's going on. There's a problem. Come to find out, someone had actually walked onto the tracks like a few stops ahead, and so everything was shut down, and they were fine. But So a few minutes later, crews come onto the train and over the loudspeaker, and they say, everyone needs to get off the train. We need to switch you to the other side of the platform because the, that side is going to shuttle back and forth because this side is shut down. No problem. I'm still enjoying my book. I walk over to the other train. I get a seat because CTA goals, and we start heading back in towards the city. 
So I reached a great stopping point in my book. I said, this is, this is fine. I'm a little late. No problem. I t- closed my book, t- put my book in my backpack. I left my backpack on the other train. Oh. So I get off at the next stop, and I'm looking for anybody, anybody who can help me. So there's obviously crews now on all the different stops. And so I go up to one of the CTA um, employees and I say, listen, here's my situation, yada, yada. And they say, listen, all we can do for you is we can give you the phone number to the O'Hare, which is the end of the blue line, the O'Hare hub to see if anyone has found your backpack and taken it there. And I'm like, well, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so, you know, my laptop wasn't in there. Nothing, nothing like inherently valuable with my Bible, my journals, all this stuff. And you know, there's no Bible like your Bible. Come on. You know, it's like, let's be real. It's nothing. So I, I take the number and I call. And I call them and I say, here's my situation. And they say, describe the backpack. I'm like, well, it's got two straps. And you, what, so it's, you wear it on your back. It's a pack you wear on your back. They found it. Someone had picked up my backpack not only not stolen it, which is goal number one, they walked it in and turned it in to lost and found. So they said, it's here, just, you know, come whenever. Like, you know, they were grabbing a cup of coffee or something. And I'm like, ah! But I was obsessed with finding my backpack. I was talking to everyone. My posture was like this. It wasn't hey. It was like this. And I was frustrated with the train going back to O'Hare because it wasn't going fast enough. But when I found my backpack, I hugged my backpack. If you don't believe me, check out what I posted on Instagram. There's me on the train hugging my backpack, and the more astute observers in the room will notice that, yes, I did, in fact, like my own post. There. You know, you got to train that Instagram algorithm, you know, that, that this post is getting some traction. That's 43 likes, people. Okay? All right? I would, what is it? Four, four, that's right, 44, because Hannah liked it, too. You got to tell the algorithm, you got to tell the algorithm that it's not only political ads I want to see, I actually want to see posts, right? So, so I found my backpack. I was obsessed and that obsession gave me that singular focus and perspective in the moment to dedicate myself to finding my backpack, no matter really any other inconvenience. The inconveniences became minor. So obsession isn't necessarily inherently a bad thing. It can be a good thing. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been studying Jesus' teachings in a part of the Bible that's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we've called our study through these, these chapters in the Bible, Kingdom Come. And in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus is extensively describing the characteristics of something that he has called God's kingdom. And as he describes God's kingdom, he's also describing the characteristics of the people who are in God's kingdom. Jesus is doing this most often by contrasting the freedom and selflessness of the kingdom of God with the self-focused, merit-based, achievement-driven religion of the world, of the day, the religious zeitgeist, which is still the same religious zeitgeist that we have today. And description by description, illustration by illustration, Jesus is inviting us to change our preoccupations. He's inviting us to shift our obsession from the rat race of self-focused righteousness chase, religious righteousness chasing and instead to shift our focus to an obsession with the kingdom of God. 
an obsession with the kingdom of God where righteousness, and what I mean by that word, it's a churchy word, uh, it's just right standing and right relationship before God. So an obsession with the kingdom of God where righteousness is freely given. It's freely given. An obsession with the kingdom of God where our separation from God because of our unholiness and his holiness, that separation is actually done away with because Jesus Christ himself has actually paid the cost of that separation and accomplished the doing away with it. And that that gift is available to everyone, everywhere, at any time. Freely given. An obsession with the kingdom of God where Jesus himself is the ruler, sometimes an uncomfortable word, but the ruler of our lives. And his rule gives certain things like freedom, gentleness, perfect love, abundant life. Not things that we would normally uh, associate with the ownership of a ruler here on earth. An obsession with the kingdom of God where the characteristics of our lives reflect the characters, the character of God himself where we achieve nothing but receive everything in relationship with God and where the fame and influence of Jesus increases and increases and increases. And that fame and influence of Jesus is the kingdom of God. Jesus is offering us an invitation to kingdom obsession. An invitation to kingdom obsession. You guys okay? And yes, it will be a preoccupation. And yes, other things will fall by the wayside, naturally, as a result of obsession. And we'll talk a little about those things. And yes, we will live in confoundingly stark contrast to the world because we will be obsessed with the kingdom of God. Jesus is inviting us to kingdom obsession. Now, as we've read through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been seeing Jesus' invitation to kingdom obsession explicitly and And by the way, just a shameless plug, if you've missed any of the sermons and you'd like to catch up on them, you can do so on the podcast on iTunes or churchinthecity.us slash listen. Thank you to those of you who are listening right now in the future. (laughs) That is so metaphysical. I hope you can handle it. (laughs) James preached and it was inception. I just can't even... So just for the sake of recent recap, just recent recap, we're not going to preach, re- preach all, this, all this series because of the podcast, but let's look at what Jesus has been establishing just recently before where we pick up Matthew 6. In the verses immediately preceding our text, in the first 18 verses, I would like to say we see a pattern developing. We see Jesus developing a pattern, and it's a pattern not because Jesus is formulaic and predictable. It's a pattern because Jesus is a good teacher, and he cares intentionally about those in his day and now who are hearing what he's teaching. You don't have to be a theologian to pick up what Jesus is putting down. You don't have to. We can understand and hear him. So Jesus is describing in Matthew 6 so far three specific actions, three specific areas of our character, and and, and going into a little bit about what those areas look like in the kingdom of God. And those three actions or areas of character are giving, praying, and fasting. Giving, praying, and fasting. Now, let's see if we can pick up on a little bit of what Jesus is establishing. We're just going to kind of blow through these um, quickly, some, some, a little chunkier passages of Scripture, but we'll just, we'll just go through them, and I want you to have your pattern-finding theologian eyes on, okay? Because you all have them. Yes? Good. So let's look at giving. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. To be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Okay, pretty straightforward. Sounds good. I've I'm, I'm, I'm got some understanding, but you know what? I'm a simple guy, and we're looking for a pattern, so we need to keep going. Jesus, can you, can you proceed, please? We talked about giving. Let's read about prayer. I'm a simple guy. I'm, let's, let's keep going. Verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, we're starting to recognize some familiar language in both the passages, right? Yes? So what do we see here that we've seen before? Well, I notice a couple of things. I notice when you give and when you pray. So it doesn't sound optional. It's not a, this is not a congressional hearing on discretionary spending. This is giving and praying when we do it. Okay? I see both of those. I also see apparently there's a way to live that prioritizes being rewarded now. There's a way to do that. We're actually capable of living to be rewarded now. Uh, And Jesus refers to that in the phrase, truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But that way of rewarding, Jesus seems to say, rings a bit hollow because who he says is after that way of living, and that's hypocrites. So it seems like something about that religious right now people, people attention reward that is incongruent with God's reason for having you do it in the first place. It's incongruent. The way of religious reward right now, okay? Jesus also seems to say that the Father who sees what we do not for those honor me now reasons actually sees us and rewards us. So God the Father, it seems Jesus is saying, uh, rewards what is done genuinely and not for visibility. Rewards for genuineness and not for visibility. Uh, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So those are just some of the things I'm picking up on. You picking up on those things? Happiness? So let's, let's really see if Jesus continues with those same thrusts here. We've talked about giving. Jesus has talked about prayer. And now let's look at what Jesus says about fasting. The, the very next verses, uh, or in the very next portion of Scripture, verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6. When you fast, told you, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. There's the living for right now reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And here we go. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So Jesus has actually been thrice clear in ye old way of saying. It's not if, but when you give, pray, fast. It's not don't desire a reward. It's which reward do you desire? The self-centered religious right now reward? And that's hypocritical because it runs contrary to God's reason for you having done it in the first place. Or the eternal God-given reward that Jesus doesn't totally explicitly explain here, but we'll talk about in a few minutes. Which reward do we desire? Jesus is establishing a kingdom pattern of how God rewards. 
He's establishing a kingdom pattern of how God rewards. And it's in stark contrast to religious achievement. And by the way, God not only creates the rewarding, but bestows it. So I'm just super excited about that. And I don't really want to get into the middle of messing that up. I want to be rewarded the way God wants to bless and reward me and give me favor. Boy, I don't want to achieve it. I have a sneaking suspicion my way will fall just a little bit short. So as as we've already said, and we're seeing established and we're reminding our hearts, Jesus is describing God's kingdom and those who are in it, and he's inviting us to take part in it, to join it, and he's doing that now through an invitation to kingdom obsession. And Jesus continues that invitation in our passage of Scripture today, but he's, he's changing his approach a little bit. He's, it's less pattern describing, and it's more compare. Come see for yourself. You hear what I'm saying? Come, come see for yourself. By now, Jesus' listeners, we're, we're well over halfway through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're, we're coming to a close in the next chapter. By now, Jesus' listeners are clear. There is a choice. There's the nonstop, never-ending pursuit of religious achievement to get God's attention, or there's the Jesus way, righteousness freely given by yielding and submitting to him, to the life which he gives. That's life in God's kingdom. And because the choice is clear and Jesus knows that, he can intensify his approach. And that's what Jesus does. He's intensifying his invitation to kingdom obsession by laying out side by side some clearly opposing choices. And we're going to see it's religion over there, kingdom of God over here. Come compare for yourself. So in our text today, we're going to see Jesus draw that dramatic unapologetic contrast that he's been camping out on since we started. The contrast between life in and of ourselves, reaching for our own glory, religiously achieving, and the kingdom of God. I know that is the 20th time I've said that, so it's going to be 20 more times because it's just what Jesus is doing. It's what he's doing. And as, as we read through our text today, I think we're going to see Jesus do something very clearly. He's going to draw that contrast between two treasures... Two visions and two masters. Two treasures, two visions, and two masters. So as we have our our eyes and hearts on as we read, let's pick it up in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Let's remember what Jesus has been doing up to this point. Let's read this together. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Two treasures, two visions, two masters. You got it in you? Let's look at it. Verse 19, two treasures that Jesus contrasts. Let's read this again because we can never read it enough. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus has recently been describing the difference between receiving earthly religious rewards and rewards from your father who sees what is done in secret. And here Jesus gets more explicit. He invites people to come and compare the durability of the two treasures. And compare the durability of the two treasures. And in the ancient world, it was exactly the same as today. Treasure goes away. Treasure goes away. Now, we may store our treasures differently, electronically, this and that, in this day and age. But treasure goes away. Did you get stock market notifications this week? Treasure goes away. Moths and vermin Destroy. Thieves break in and steal. It's like I was going to say Steve breaks in and steals. But... <laughs> Don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> that word for vermin in the, in the original Greek text, you'll see some translations actually use the word rust. Because that word, it's a difficult word to translate. It literally means the constant, unstoppable eating away. It's the, it's, the, it's the inescapable corrosion of things. It's driving the new car you bought off the lot, and it just depreciates. It never stops. In heaven, treasure, treasure's not subject to that. Now, why is Jesus explicit about this? Because where your treasure is, where, where you are laying up treasure, is, is indicative of where your heart is going. Now, really quickly here, what is Jesus not forbidding? You know I love to ask this question, what what is not happening in Scripture? Because it helps illuminate what is happening in Scripture. Jesus is not forbidding the ownership of resources and things. That's not not consistent with the rest of Scripture. The act of having is not inherently sinful. Jesus is not forbidding wise saving. Planning is not inherently sinful. We see that especially in Proverbs and, and in the New Testament in 1 Timothy, where it's, it's, it's applauded to wisely save, to purposely, intentionally save for a specific benefit, and we'll get to that in a minute. Jesus is not forbidding the enjoyment of possessions. Enjoying what God blesses and gives is not sinful. How incongruent would that be and frustrating to see a God who declares all the time that he wants to bless us, to see, to see people crying out for God's blessing and then to enjoy his blessing is sinful. No thanks. Jesus is not forbidding enjoyment. Jesus is doing something very specific. He is contrasting a self-centered, miserly, selfish heart with a generous, others-focused heart. He's contrasting the miserly heart with the generous heart. The miserly heart amasses treasure not to enjoy it or to provide for others, but to hoard it and lord it over others. It's old-timey preaching. Hoard it and lord it. You can take the boy out of Dixie. Hoard it and lord it. That's what the miserly heart wants to do. But here's the problem. None of that goes with you. Sorry to sound like a bumper sticker, but it doesn't. So Jesus speaks to the purpose of our having and the purpose of our planning. It's a steady, unstoppable depreciation to nothingness if it's stored up for ourselves, if it's stored up only for us. That's miserly and self-focused. But heavenly treasure is different. It's actually incorruptible. It has value now, 
in our present age, it has value then, eternally. Jesus doesn't explicitly get into and enumerate or explain what this treasure in heaven it is, treasure in heaven is. But we already know what Jesus has been valuing and esteeming up to this point anyway. The abiding knowledge and sweetness of his presence. The glory and miraculous power of God shown clearly to us. We just cried out for it for 45 minutes together in song. You don't do that any other time of your week. Get together with people and just sing. We want the glory of God. We want it now and we'll have it then forever manifest physically in the absence of time forever. People coming to know Jesus as Savior. The lost being saved. People who are not in the kingdom of God becoming part of the kingdom of God. God's abundant provision. We could preach on this for hours. Treasures that God is bestowing. The selfish heart is consumed by what flows in. The generous heart is consumed by what flows out. And that speaks to how we reckon treasure. So Jesus invites us to kingdom obsession because that resulting treasure is everlasting. It's not subject to depreciation or loss or mismanagement, vermin, moth, just stealing. It's not subject to that. He contrasts two treasures. Jesus moves on and and he's going to take us from two treasures to two visions. Let's read in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Let's look each other in the eye for a second. Jesus kind of loses us here. Come on, I'm admitting it. He loses you. You get it with treasures because all he does is say the same sentence over and over. except He just puts not in there. So you go, I get it. It doesn't, that treasure doesn't do that. Perfect. Thank you, Jesus. And then he starts talking about eyes and light and our body and what is happening. We can admit it. I was following along, Jesus, when it was about treasure. And now what are you doing? Relax. When this happens, just remind yourself what's happening. What is Jesus doing? He's drawing a contrast. He's drawing a contrast. So, what is he contrasting here? This is, again, where the translation is very difficult, and it doesn't tend to be able to do us a lot of favors. So we're going to break it open just a little bit. The word I in Greek is the word ophthalmos which makes sense. You go see the ophthalmologist, right? So that, that word in, in Greek, ophthalmos, refers to your literal, physical, anatomical eye and vision. But it was also used in the sense to describe uh, the figur- figurative motive-based vision for one's life or for one's um, uh, ambitions or motivations. So that vision, that, that's where we get the phrase, your mind's eye. It's the root of that kind of phrase. And we see in Scripture that the word I is often used um, interchangeably with, uh, actually, with heart. It's the seat of our vision, of our pursuit, of our ambitions. It's the seat of where we're going and where we want to go and what we're after, the direction in which we're moving. So just like what our English word vision can, can refer physically to I can see you right now, uh, it also means I have vision for X, Y, Z. And the Greek word was, was exactly the same. 
And the words healthy and unhealthy are also really important to, to understand here. You, 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 some translations actually say good and bad, and that's, that's actually not too bad of a translation. The Greek for healthy is haplos, and it means clear and sound and simple. It, it's working correctly. But it also refers to a health that manifests itself in abundance. It's an overflowing abundance. So it's a health that almost can't contain itself. And the Greek for unhealthy is poneros, which means wicked, slothful, almost ungood. There you go. Write that one down. Ungood. But just as, but just as healthy means overflowing, this, this unhealthy means so ungood that it kind of sucks into itself. So in light of what those words mean, I, you can see Jesus act, actually hasn't drastically changed course here. <laughs> He's actually not trying to lose us. And I'm sorry if you weren't lost there. I'm just, I applaud you. But let's hear Jesus' words for what he's actually saying. And this is the JLT, the James Lust translation. Um, there are currently two verses in it, these two. I'm working on the rest of Scripture and <laughs> check back with me. This is, this, is, this is my interpretation of what Jesus is saying here. Your vision and ambitions are your core. And if they're generous and others-focused, you'll be full of light. If they're miserly or stingy, self-focused, your core is darkness. And if the part of you that can be light is actually instead darkness, that darkness is extra dark. The selfish heart is consumed by what flows in. The generous heart is consumed by what flows out. Both will produce a kind of vision, but only one is light. Only one is light. In contrasting two treasures, Jesus asks us, which of these come and compare? Which of these is more durable? In contrasting two visions, Jesus says, come, come and compare. Which of these is more beneficial? Which, which do you want to walk in here? Extra inescapable darkness or the light? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your vision is, you know where your heart is going. Come and compare for yourself. Jesus invites us to kingdom obsession because the resulting vision of that is unity with God's heart. Unity with God's heart. Couple minutes. Two masters, Jesus contrasts here. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You probably had these verses thrown at you once or twice, right? Can't serve God and money. That word money is the Aramaic word mammon. And it means wealth and possession and riches, resources, the, the, the things that, that we have. And once again, we, we need to remind ourselves, Jesus is not forbidding wealth. He's not forbidding the having, the planning, the enjoying. He's speaking directly to our view of it. Speaking directly to our view of it. And by the way, this is for free. This, what I love about Jesus not forbidding this is this actually is Jesus speaking to everyone no matter what we have. Whether we're incredibly wealthy or we have little, uh, no matter our wealth and resources, uh, it's not about, Jesus' teaching is not about the amount, it's about our heart for what we have. 
Isn't it great that Jesus doesn't put a gradation on people, a value gradation on people based upon what we have or any other factor? His, his teaching, his salvation, his instruction is equally available to all, and we are all equally accountable to it. And so as, as believers in Jesus, as, as people in God's kingdom, we actually get the freedom. We are exempt from the need to classify and put a gradation on people because of anything. Wealth, race, class, gender, uh, opportunity, time in which you live. All those things are worldly distinctions for categorization. And in the kingdom of God, we get to do away with them. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Do away with the classifying of people by them is what I mean by that. So Jesus' teaching is for all, just as his salvation is for all. That was a complete digression, and I'm not sorry. Jesus is bringing home his contrast. He's bringing home this contrast between this self-focused religious ambition and the authentic kingdom of God. And, And this pattern of seeking reward from people... Or from God is coming to a head now in Jesus' comparisons here. And it culminates simply in a question of mastership. Lordship. Who will you serve? In whom or in what will you find your identity? And through what lens will we see all that we are and all that we have? And here's the thing. Here's the stark contrast. It's a zero-sum game. It really is a zero-sum game. I mean, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and mammon, what you have, what you're after. It's, I'll be honest, I mean, it's unbearably clear and it's uncomfortably stark. It is. Earthly wealth and worth will be our paradigm. Or the kingdom of God will be. There's no bleeding when there's bleeding, it's done. It's, it's moved over to one. You do have an obsession. You do have an obsession. That's not what's in question. When the self-ambitious heart is consumed by what flows in, and the generous heart is consumed by what flows out, both have a master, and they're mutually exclusive. It's not a question of if we are obsessed. It's a question of Whom or what is the object of our obsession? And Jesus is making clear his invitation to kingdom obsession. A preoccupation with him and the way he thinks, loves, acts, regards others, sacrifices, gives, prays, fasts, relates to the God of eternity. There are times when I preach and it's, well, I'll just be honest. I hope I, hope I hope I can be honest. Can I be honest? Okay, good. There are times when I preach and it just, it feels really good. Just like, oh, Lord, I'm so excited. It's like preaching David and Goliath. And David took that sling and just, and it's just, woo, have a great Sunday. And there are other times, there are other times when you're preaching and you go, Lord, I am the, the preposterously last qualified person to bring this. I, because of that, I wanna, I'm trusting that the Lord is speaking through his word. Not, not, not through my words, but through, that he's convicting, convicting in a good way hearts and, and bringing eyes, fresh eyes onto parts of our lives. And, and I'm hoping that's what's happened for you. And as I think about that for myself, there are a few key questions that come up. And they're really quick, but I just want to read them. And I hope they strike you as well. Where do you find your reward? Where do you find your reward? 
Are you hungry for the, for the temporary applause of people? I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong to have other people enjoy what you do and to compliment you. You know what I mean. Are you hungry for that? How ready are you to humbly give that up for the recognition of heaven, to prioritize what God wants to do and, and what God bestows so freely and to have that resonate within you, in you, through you, to others? Where do you find your reward? Secondly, what's your vision for your life? What's your vision for your life? I've only recently, in the last year, been confronted with that question. What's your vision for your life? I'm actually, I actually feel like God's speaking into that into hearts right now. Do your earthly pursuits have eternal consequences? Does that factor into your vision for your life? And I, and I feel to challenge just right now, if your vision for your life feels comfortable and sort of like you can fit it in your back pocket, understand that God is doing this. He's elbowing out the edges of it. And I want the vision for my life to get off the page a little bit, past the margins where I go, where, where is this going? Lord, I'm... Because I don't want to have a heart that's consumed with what flows in. I want to have a heart with, that's consumed with what flows out. And lastly, are you willing, are you willing, are you willing to get heavenly risky with earthly resources? Are you willing to get heavenly risky with earthly resources? Maybe it's, maybe it's tithing. Awkward church leader talking about tithing. I'm all about awkward. Maybe it's tithing. Maybe it's, maybe it's truly looking the Lord in the eye and say, the first of what I make, this first 10% is yours. Maybe it's sacrificially giving your time. Maybe it's sacrificially giving of a way you're skilled, serving. Any number of things. Those are just examples. But what does it look like to put your treasure where your mouth is? Are we willing to get heavenly risky with our earthly resources? That challenges me to the core. It's starkly uncomfortable. But it's indicative of where my heart is, according to Jesus Christ. What a challenge. Super uncomfortable, but I'm going to leave it there. Because I think we need to sit there for a few moments. Where do we find our reward? What's the vision for your life? Are you willing to get earthly risky with heavenly, or to get heavenly risky with earthly resources? Maybe you could stand for a moment, and, and we're going to pray. And I, I'm actually, I'm actually standing too. I'm coming down here because I'm standing because this speaks so much to me. And I'm not, I'm not being gratuitous, and I'm not being, I'm not trying to be manipulative, but if. If there's, if there's a response, I don't know, the, the, a response of surrender, maybe even physically, I think, I think that's appropriate in this moment. If it's, if it's your hands open or maybe it's whatever, a gaze turned upward, just to say to the Lord, what's the state of my heart? And lastly, maybe you're here today and, and you actually have never... You've never expressed to Jesus a desire for him to be Lord of your life. And the Bible is very clear that you can actually do that right now. And that Jesus will come into your life and he'll never leave it.
And that's not something you've ever done. It's as simple as saying to the Lord. This is as simple as praying. Lord, would you come into my life? I surrender to you. I want my heart to be yours. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the stark clarity of your kingdom. And I, and I, I, stand, I stand here with this church family, Lord. And we say, Lord, <laughs> we just pray your word back to you. We want to lay up treasures in heaven. We don't want the religious reward-seeking of the world. We want the authentic kingdom of God selfless, others-focused, sacrificial, freely giving, freely generous, freely risky, freely sacrificial. We want that place in our hearts, Lord. We want the eye of our body, the vision of our life to be healthy. We don't want to serve the master of money. We want to serve the master, King Jesus. So we just declare that right now in Jesus' name. Would you move, Holy Spirit? Would you shine the light in hearts? Lord, thank you that your conviction is sweet and gentle and welcoming, Lord. There's no condemnation in this room, Lord. Instead, there's a welcome, there's a beckoning that says the way is here and I'm with you and I'll never leave you. We worship you, Lord. Thank you for all that you're doing. We trust you with this. Let decision and impact happen today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City, all of Jesus for everyone.